If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Christopher Rose. It seems like there's been a lot of attention on Central Asia and the Silk Route lately. There have been books about the region's political history, economic history, and the trade in goods that have gone back and forth has long fascinated readers of all ages. But it's rarely appreciated how much of the history of medicine in the pre-modern period has also hinged on the same cross-cultural interactions and knowledge transmissions that guided trade and other interactions along the Silk Route. That's just changed with the publication of Reorienting Histories of Medicine, Encounters Along the Silk Roads by Runit Ueli Tlalim. Using manuscripts found in key Eurasian nodes of the medieval world, Dunhuang, Kucha, the Cairo Geniza, and Tabriz in multiple languages, this fascinating and much-needed book analyzes a number of case studies of Eurasian medical encounters, giving a voice to places, language, people, and narratives which were once prominent but have gone silent. This is a really important book for those interested in the history of medicine, as well as the transmissions of knowledge that have taken place over the course of global history. I really enjoyed reading this, and I hope you'll enjoy my interview with Ronit. Ronit Ueli Tlalim is reader in history at Goldsmiths, University of London in the UK. She's the co-editor of Rashida Dean, agent and mediator of cultural exchanges in Ilkhanid, Iran, Islam and Tibet, interactions along the musk routes, and astro-medicine, astrology and medicine, East and West. Here's our interview. Ronit Yoeli Tlalim, welcome to the New Books Network. Our traditional first question is about yourself. Uh, So tell us more about you, uh, where you're from, your academic background, and what led you to become interested in this topic? So first of all, thank you for having me. Um, uh, I'm from, from Israel. So I did my undergraduate and MA um, in Israel, 
um, and then I came to London to the School of Oriental and African Studies to do my, my PhD in Tibetan Buddhism. Um, my, my father grew up in, in Vienna, and we had a kind of really European household. And I was, I, when I, growing up, I thought that I was European. And then when I came to Europe, I realized that, no, I'm actually Middle Eastern. And I think that that kind of reposition, disposition, displacement, that in a way is inherent to to my people, mm-hmm. made me think, maybe think about questions that um, about belonging, about localities, about identities, um, issues that somehow I, I come back to over and over again. You think you're one thing, but you're actually another. You come from one place, but what does that mean? Um, and and these issues that I, I um, have been constantly uh, interested in and that come in the book in, in various forms. Um, also in, in the book, I talk more specifically in the, in the preface, which is pretty personal. I talk about the, how I came to be interested in, in Tibetan um, Tibetan studies and um, and I say that so before becoming an academic I was a journalist and um, um, and and I say that I've always had this dream to to go to to Tibet and that was finally um, that finally happened when when some kind of stringing job in Lhasa fell into my lap. Um, but then when writing the book, I, I revisited this very narrative of myself and, and said, but wait a minute, why did I always have this dream to, to go to Tibet? And, and I go back to, to a story we read in school in year five or so, which is Lost Horizon. And, you know, I had to admit to myself um, almost embarrassingly that that was the beginning um and and so and so i wanted to to one of the things that i wanted to look into in the book is is these these narratives that that make a deep impression on us why why is it and and what can we learn from them so so this is um kind of in short um how how I how I came to some of these topics that I talk about in the book, uh, and and what interested you in the in the specifically the history of medicine? So the the history of medicine. So I at first I I dealt more with um, with religion and history of religion, um, but the and bit by bit I came into into medicine and history of medicine and. What I find really fascinating in, in history of medicine is that it it somehow it allows you to to look at um, its history in a much more direct way than the history of religions. What I mean to say by that is that religions tend to hide, say things like influences. Um, I remember, for example, um, when um, 
uh, Anna Akaso and myself were at the Warburg Institute and we were looking at narratives of the history of um, history of the Buddha. So this narrative that comes from from India, it, we looked at the transmission into into Arabic um, uh, via Rashid Adin, but also other transmissions, and then um, from Arabic into Hebrew, and then the the whole Buddhist story of of the um, the history of the of the Buddha becomes very obscure and becomes uh, an Islamic story or or a Jewish story because once it it transforms to an, to another culture the the there is a, a desire to cover up um, so that it it will function in the new context whereas in history of medicine you you can see through the seams as it were more easily and so for for a historian working on transmissions of knowledge there's a lot to to unpick and to um, to question and to 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 dig into um, and and history of medicine travels very very easily because um, you know people want to get the the best kind of knowledge uh, from anywhere there's no limitation as as you'd find in other spheres of of knowledge so so it's a field that that is very fruitful to um to look at transmissions uh, of knowledge i want to start by asking you to explain the significance of the title of the book reorienting histories of medicine uh you go into this in the introduction and you're playing with both the dominant paradigm as well as giving a nod to Andre Gunder Frank. Uh, could you tell us more about the questions that you're raising here and why? So when I um, when I bring up this term reorienting, capital R and capital O, um, there's a few things that I'm I'm trying to do. First of all, to to establish this connection between to, or to bring up the 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 connection between the East and our orientation, so where we are positioned uh, and the, the definition of ourselves vis-a-vis the world, wherever we, we may be. So how, how in a way, the, the East defines our, our outlook. And uh, the, the second thing is um, this idea that also Gunder Frank does the, that's Moving away from from a Eurocentric bias, or that um, bringing back the importance of of the East in terms of not just the history of the East, but the history of of global knowledge of global medicine. Um, so, in a way, this is also what Gunder Frank does in terms of world economy. Um, I'm saying that. You know, similarly, we can do um, this this move when we think about transmissions of knowledge and the the history the history of medicine at large. We have to look at the bigger picture in order to understand um, even things like uh, European um, European medical knowledge. 
So that's the reorienting, bringing, bringing back the the Orient as as an essential part of the story. Another dominant theme in the book is uh, your argument uh, that of a Eurasian contact zone. Um, in short, discussing what happened in the more local connections in the middle of the what we come to know as the Silk Route, uh, rather than what was happening on either end of it. Um, can you uh, talk a little bit about what that lens offers uh, both historians of medicine as well as, as other historians? So the, what I try to, to do in the book is to look at the, at the Silk Roads in a way that, that um, mo- moves away from the, the dominance of the, of the end point. So bringing the focus on the in-between what happened at this in this vast area of um, multiple interactions, multiple languages? So, so what that brings is a kind of moving away from the from the grand cultures to the lesser known um, lesser known cultures. So, you know, I'm saying if you want to if you want to learn if you want to study, if you want to research um, world history, then it's not enough just to, to focus on what happened in China and what happened in, in Greece uh, and or Rome. Um, and more people should be studying not just Latin and Chinese, but the, the multiple languages um, in between. Um and that brings about a lot of difficulty because these are, um, it, it's a kind of vicious cycle because they are lesser known. They're they're less less funded. Less people would tend to 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 know and want to to study them, um, mm-hmm. and and so they 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 continue to 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 create less less scholarship, uh, less positions, less. Um, less research and and therefore continue to be to be lesser known. But we need to to find ways to to realize that they these in between cultures um, are are very important. And um, um, yeah, and that that's part of what in the book I talk about this in relation to the history of medicine. But I think it's relevant for. For, for other fields um, as well. I mean, there, it's even true for, you know, languages like, like Arabic or Persian that are not studied enough. And, uh, and there's still so much material to, for scholars to, to look at. Um, whereas people continue to, to study Latin and, and Greek and so on. So it's a call to, to, that's another way of reorienting. It's a call to, to remember that these are very important cultures and, and, um, and should be studied and funded and researched. Your first chapter examines some of the narratives that give a Eurasian account of the history of medicine 
And one of the things I really like here is uh, your insistence on not separating out texts that incorporate events that are commonly uh, referred to somewhat dismissively as quote unquote mythical uh, from those that are considered more authentically, and again, I'll use quotes here, historical. Uh, can you talk about some of these texts and what they show? Yeah. Um, so I think I first thought about this this issue when um, when I was studying um, early on the the history of, of Buddhism, and the so, so we have the the narratives of of the life of of the Buddha, uh, which incorporate a lot of so called mythical elements, um, but then in, in the way they were translated or uh, transformed, transmitted into accounts of, say, Western scholarship when they were retelling the, the story of the life of the Buddha. They were telling the story without omitting these um, these elements. So so they'd say, you know, if it was uh, the, the Buddha was a prince in the traditional story that that would appear but if the the narrative says then that as soon as the buddha was born he took seven steps that was not appearing and so mm-hmm. that that was the first time i i thought about this um kind of picking out the the the, the what seemed to these scholars or or whoever whoever was was rewriting the, the story the, the bits that they chose to to leave out so so I was um, this is when I, I began to be interested in in this process and then um, when I was when I started working on on the history of medicine and came across these really fascinating narrative that we find in Tibetan medical histories that um, the king invited a, a doctor from 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 China, a doctor from India, and a doctor from the West, and the the doctor from the West was Galenos, the famous Galen, the Roman um, the Roman physician. Um, um, uh, the king from the the physician from from China was the Yellow Emperor, who's you know a, a fictitious figure, and similarly the the one from India is a fictitious figure, and that again. That narrative was then, when it was retold in secondary literature, um, what we found is that, well, the, first of all, the, the narrative continues that the, the three of them sat together and wrote, uh, wrote books uh, and discussed things, etc. And then the king uh, sent away the, the Indian doctor and the Chinese doctor, but he kept this Galenos as a court physician and he set up a school and had children, etc., etc. And then what we found in secondary literature is that it said that um, Tibetan medicine from its uh, early stages incorporated uh, Greek, uh, Greek elements based on, on this story. So I said, wait a minute. Um, what what can we learn first of all from the fact that Galen's colleagues, as it were, here are are mythical? Um, 
does it, how, how should we understand the story? Um, and then what is the, what is the significance of these mythical and semi-mythical elements? Um, they are there for a reason. And what are they trying to tell us? What are they trying to emphasize? And then how does that, um, um, how does that manifest in, in, in the actual medical text? Um, is it the same or different? Is it that there's a, a kind of narrative that tries to paint a picture that is actually different from what the content of, of the medical text that we have suggests? And does it tell us anything about the, the period that it's trying to describe, or is it more about the, the period in which these texts are written? It's the second option. So um, all these things, I think, are are really interesting questions when you when you don't shy away from mythical elements in so-called historical narratives, uh, but try to understand why are they there and what are they trying to to tell us, um, not just you know cut them out, uh, but, but try to understand the significance um, and the, the way that they are woven together into um, real events, real people, um, and so on. Another distinction uh, that you argue, and I will confess that when I read this, I got up and did a little, a little happy dance because... Um, it's something that I've spent quite a bit of time thinking about, um, is the distinction between uh, what today might be considered, uh, quote unquote, medical practice and what we would in the modern day consider uh, divination or magic. Um, and you argue that, again, when we're talking about uh, the pre-modern period, this is not a particularly useful distinction to draw. Um, and this is particularly uh, prescient uh, in chapter two, where you discuss the, the so-called Bauer manuscript. Um, so can you tell us uh, more about these texts um, and what they tell us about the way medicine was practiced um, in uh, Central and East Central Asia in, in the late first millennium? So first of all, if, if I cause anyone to, to go out and do a happy dance, then my work is done. Um, okay. Your work is done. <laughs> <laughs> But um, back to um, reality, um, I think these, um, I find these, these blurry boundaries between um, what we, what we now call medical practice, magic and, and divination are really interesting um, to look at historically, but also what the does that mean about how how we perceive these things today? Um, and um, there there's a central there are a few central issues that that weave these these things together. Um, basically, the 
um, what medicine, the medical practice tries to do is, is look at, at signs that, that appear before the, the physician and, and from that deduce what's going to happen. Um, so it's a form of, of prognosis that is in some respects similar to divination. You look at signs and you say, okay, this is what's going to happen. It's true that today we're, we're better equipped to, to foretell the, the future in that way. But there are things that, that we, we can learn even from the way the, these texts, the Bauer manuscript and, and other texts, deal with this fundamental issue of, of the human desire to manage the unknown. Um, and so, so this issue of managing the unknown, which ties in these two things together, the, or three things together, the medicine, divination, and, and magic, is, is about several things. What, one of them is about understanding the, or can be, about understanding the, the patient deeply. And we found in a lot of, in these texts, they, it's not just, you know, hocus pocus that's totally irrelevant, but, but it's about understanding the, the person that, that is, that is in, in front of you, um, to, to the point that ripens what, what Jung would call intuition. So, so Jung, when he talks about in his introduction to, uh, to the I Ching, he says, what is this whole divination thing? Um, what, what does it do to us? It, it ripens something that is, that is in us, some kind of understanding that we cannot place a, a specific, perhaps rational or medical term, but it ripens a deeper intuition that we can term intuition. And I think that's, that's something that, that ties these, these things together in a way that is instructive to to us to to think about even when we when we consider when we think about what medicine is today and what different forms of medicine are today what do they do what they don't do um and and how they deal with this basic issue of managing the unknown because there, there will always be some unknown. Um, there's obviously less unknowns today, but there's still a lot of unknowns. Um, it's not medicine is not an exact science. Um, mm-hmm. it, we we are dealing with with human beings that are very complex and and difficult to 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 understand, um, and so. Um, th- these kinds of questions, as they come up in the in the text that that I talk about, I think um, bring out these um, these issues. And actually, just yesterday, I was reading again um, something that Desi Sangye Gyatso, the the regent of the fifth Dalai Lama, said that the 
wrote at the end of the 17th century, or beginning of 18th century, about, um, so he wrote about medicine and about divination. Um, and he said um, something along the lines of, you know, divination allows us in, in, in certain cases not to um, need to rely on guesswork. Um, so, so there are times and, and questions that you don't know what, as a physician, you don't know what, what to do. And, and divination, um, or you might call it magic or um, whatever, um, helps you to, to understand or to, to realize what to do so you don't rely on guesswork. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Yeah, this, this really resonated with me because... Um, in reading about uh, the history of medicine in the Islamic world, um, there is a dated but still relatively standard text where this it, this distinction is made, and uh, it's always struck me as odd because um, this distinction between medicine and magic is entirely modern and um, projected backwards, right, in time. And the people who were doing this would not have considered those different. Um, and another thing, of course, that, that routinely pops up is, is the sort of modern prescription of what is textual Islam um, as distinct from what is usually dismissed as folk religion, as if the practitioners would have recognized those as two distinct entities. Um, and, and so when you were talking about this, it, it really just resonated that what we're seeing is this modern interpretation of what this practice was, but it would not have been recognized as such by the people who are practicing it. Definitely. And, and, and that that's a really important point also. Well, first of all, that, you know, as historians, we always have to look at, at the at the text in the eyes of, of the people who, who wrote it and used it. So f for them, there was no distinction at all. There, it, it's one field, and therefore we cannot do like, like a, we spoke earlier about the, the narratives, you know, um, mm -hmm. delete the, the bits that, that look mythical to us so, so we don't repeat them in our narratives. No, it's part of the narrative. No, it's part of the practice of the medical practice. We can't say, okay, we're only studying the the rational sides of this medicine, and we're not interested in the what we call non-rational. It's all part of of the practice. It's all part of the same understanding, um, and we can. And it's it's kind of basic, I think. Um, historical practice not to impose our own 
ideas and outlooks and and judgment on and what counts and what doesn't count. They saw it as one, and so we need to see it as one. Mm-hmm. I think that's really, mm-hmm. really important. Um, so having looked at these um, these things, and your book has these wonderful illustrations, um, in particular of uh, the dice that were used um, to to do these divinations. Um, there's some great illustrations in this book. I, I hope that they remain uh, if it goes into paperback. I'll try and make sure. You then look specifically at things that have spread uh, uh, through Eurasia uh, as a result of, of the, the movement and exchange of ideas. Um, chapter three focuses on something I had never heard of before, uh, myrobalance, um, which was a popular substance highly as medicine. Um, so tell us more about them and why they were in such high demand. So uh, first of all, maybe you haven't heard them as marabalans, but if you go to your local health food shop, uh, you will find the three marabalans sold. Um, they're sold in the name of, of the, the, based on their Sanskrit name, the, they're sold as Tripala. Mm. They're found basically everywhere um and so i i'm really fascinated by these super drugs um um some years ago was working on the islam in tibet uh, project at the warburg institute we looked at mosque and how that featured in the in the eurasian um cultural exchanges and transmissions of knowledge between the islamic world and and Tibet or between Tibet and the Islamic world and how that transmits and and uh, goes across borders of, of medical understanding and um, marbalans are are similarly really fascinating um, substance so they're they're really useful for a lot of things. Um, and they appear as as a kind of cure all in in so many different cultural contexts that that I looked at um, across Eurasia, and and what I was fascinated by is um, how when looking at a super drug like that, um, it's really interesting to see how the the medical knowledge and the 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 stories around it and the the trade information around it uh, when, when meshed together they bring out um a, a really rich story um so for example the um marbalans are found in um they they are the it's a plant it's three different variations of the plant. And in um, um, there was an important Buddhist um, image of the, the medicine Buddha, so the emanation of the Buddha that is responsible for, for healing. Mm-hmm. Um, in, the, in the visual depictions of the medicine Buddha, he is holding um, a marbleon plant. So it's, it's that important. In the in the Buddhist um, in the Buddhist context, and similarly in in rituals, 
that are associated with the medicine Buddha. The substance that is used is marbalan. Um, and then all the way to, to Maimonides in, in the Cairo Geniza that basically recommends it for everything. And so what, what I was trying to, um, to figure out is does this knowledge of, or, or this PR of the substance as a cure-all, does that travel with, uh, how does that travel? Do these fantastic stories about this substance curing everything um, and, and being almost a, a mythical kind of substance uh, that we find in, in, in different Buddhist contexts and uh, practice and ritual, does that travel with the substance itself? So, so the, does, does that travel when we, when we, when we follow the, the trade from, of, of medicinal substances from, from India into, into Cairo and thereafter to, to Europe? Um, does it, um, come with, with would traders say, okay, look, this is really good stuff. You should take this. Um, and then transmits into, into medical knowledge. So, um, so there in this chapter, I probe these connections and these, um, uh, ways of, of, um, constructing, um, a panacea, a, a cure-all. Um, so yeah, I think it's a really interesting, uh, substance to, to, to look at all these, uh, questions. It, it was, it was certainly fascinating, especially when you see things attributed to it, like, uh, it being said that, that people were living a couple of centuries, uh, if they took it on a regular basis and, and what again, appear to be very fantastical things, but just sort of emphasizing the the miracle nature of this, this potent drug. But, but again, so that, that ties into what we were talking about earlier. So there's again, the, the interaction between the fantastic and, and the real, uh, because I talk about something I talk about in the book is this, this idea that in India stuff grows that, that is, that will give you a very long life or sometimes eternal life. And, and this is a kind of a motif that, that I return to in, in different parts of the book. And that adds to or, or plays a part in the allure that, that you have uh, of these substances that, that come from India to the Middle East um, and, and later to, to Europe. Um, okay, this, this thing is from India. It, it's going to cure you from, from everything. That's something that, that, that we do find in, in medical prescriptions, but it, it builds on these fantastical ideas um, that are not necessarily medical. So these stories that in India you find these wondrous drugs, these uh, trees of life, all these things that, that, that go way, way back, and keep coming up in, in myths and stories, but but they 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 trickle deep. Mm-hmm. 
So, um, and, you know, even in films, Hollywood films today, we have this, this idea that, you know, there is the, in the East lies the, the, the secret to, to long life and to the, these, um, these, these ideas that, that operate both on the, on the mythical uh, level and on the practical level. So, so what I try to do, I think, throughout the book is, is see how these two um, interact, the, 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 mythical, the mythical ideas and the stories that, that trickle deep and, and how they, they interact with, with real-life stuff. Chapter 4 then looks at one of the apparently widespread practices that is found um, throughout this Eurasian context, and that is uh, moxibustion or uh, moxicottery, which is the practice of healing parts of the body uh, for therapeutic and preventative purposes. Um, can you describe the practice and, and how it was received in, in various contexts? So um, I think people generally know about um, acupuncture. Mm-hmm. So in acupuncture, you you puncture the, the body in specific points. In in moxibustion, you you heat points, often the same points, but not necessarily. So heating different points in the body to to do whatever to move blocks, stuff or energy or, or whatever you, you might be you might be doing. So so it's about heating these these spots or these these specific locations uh, this is very common in, in Chinese medicine and uh, in Tibetan medicine in in Chinese medicine to to this day you know if you go to a Chinese doctor or a doctor practicing Chinese medicine they they light something that looks like a big cigar and and they put it in near a specific locations. The, the Tibetan practices um, tend to to uh, burn a little bundle of same substance but on the skin so it's a little bit less pleasant. Um, and further west we have um, a similar practice uh, that that uh, heats or or sometimes burns locations in the body uh, with with hot iron. Mm. So the this chapter starts out with the the work that I've been doing on the Tibetan medical manuscripts from from Dunhuang. Uh, Dunhuang is an important uh, nexus in, on the Silk Roads, where about hundred years ago they found uh, a cave. Uh, the so-called library cave, where a few tons of manuscripts were sealed for over a thousand years. Um, so that library is a fascinating treasure trove mm-hmm. for for uh, researching um, transmissions uh, of knowledge. Um, to be fair, most of the texts are Buddhist and they are in Chinese. But uh, there's enough 
other texts. So I, I've been working on the Tibetan medical manuscripts from there. Um, and then I, um, together with a colleague, with uh, Vivian Lowe from UCL, I looked at, uh, she was working on the Chinese uh, texts. And so we looked at how they, how they compare. They're, and they're basically very, very similar. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the interesting thing about, uh, well, there's, there are a lot of different interesting things about them, but a few to point out here is uh, one that they, um, they're what uh, Vivian Lowe has called household medicine. So they're very easy t- to use. Um, and the way that the the practice is described, anyone can follow. Whereas for acupuncture, you need to be very precise and very knowledgeable. Here, the the way that it's described would say something like, uh, uh, measure three fingers above the belly and burn 17 boxes um, in case that you have blah, blah, and blah. Mm-hmm. So, you know, everyone can use it um and um it it appears to to uh function in a way that goes beyond what we tend to call learned medicine and and the other thing that that is really fascinating in both in the practice and the transmission of it um is that it comes together with um, illustrations and these are some of the earliest illustrations we have um, and that and those so we have the, the knowledge the construction of that knowledge and the technology being paper these are early days of paper mm-hmm. um, we're talking 9th 10th century um, how that that comes together um, so because there is a, a, a growing availability of paper that allows for people to sketch uh, kind of rough drawings uh, of, of a human body and with things that are like dots and arrows to say, okay, burn here, burn here, burn here. Uh-huh. Um, and then... Together with with the the text that describes it uh, in in more detail, um, so then we have another really fascinating example of similar um, illustrations, not a lot of text that that come from slightly further west. Another important point on the Silk Road, uh, Turfan where we have an Uyghur uh, example mm-hmm. of this. It's not clear when it's from, but probably from around the 12th century. So we see this kind of practice moving moving west. And then I make the leap in the book, but I leave it open in the sense of we are not sure how exactly that leap goes. But we find a similar, slightly later, but similar kind of practices um, also in, in Anatolia. And, and I 
try to draw the, the, the possible connections and places where that kind of knowledge would have gone through. Mm-hmm. So whereas in, in the previous chapter, I looked at a, at a substance uh, and how we can trace its transmission, what I do in this chapter is, is say, oh, here's a, here's a practice that's fairly easy to use, especially when you accompany it with, with images or drawings that are now becoming more and more easy to do because we have the technology, meaning paper, um, and, and how that allows for the, the, the const- a specific construction of, or a, a construction of a specific kind of hands-on, easy-to-use uh, knowledge that then is able to transmit uh, across uh, long it- geographical areas. Your final chapter looks at uh, Mongol-era Iran as a center for intellectual exchange, where ideas from China and Tibet mingle with ideas from Central Asia, uh, the Middle East, the Mediterranean, um, and apparently uh, ideas spread as far west as England. Uh, Can you describe how this, this knowledge hub worked and why it was so successful at this particular period? So this this period and specifically the 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 work of uh, Rashid Adin in in this period um, as a as a topic of, uh, I began to be interested in when we were working on the Islam and, and Tibet project. the The interesting thing about the the Mongol era um, is that being an empire of uh, so under one roof you have a lot of different cultures. And beyond the kind of the, the popular view of the, of the Mongol era as being, you know, a time of destruction and death and so on, there was also a lot of cultural interaction going on. And one of the most interesting um, places of that cultural interaction was was um, in Tabriz under the direction of Rashid Adin, who was a, himself a doctor, but also a minister. So he set up a kind of scholar's town um, in in Tabriz, which is northern Iran of, of today. That was the, the Mongol uh, Western court. So after the Mongol Empire disintegrated into four different courts, that was the the, the westernmost um, court, the, the Ilkhanid. Mm-hmm. And there... Um, so he brought into, he said, this is an amazing opportunity we have under one roof. We have people from all these different cultures. Let's bring them together. We will we'll place them in, in, in this town, the Rabah Ashidi, and we'll, we'll feed them. We'll give them uh, the, the conditions with which they can discuss and write and produce knowledge. So it's it's an incredible initiative if you if you think about it. This is happening in the 13th century, mm-hmm. um, and and so we have he gathered people from from China, from Tibet, from India, uh, from all over the the Mongol uh, Empire, and he sat them together. And so um, we mostly know about his uh, what's called the the world history. Where, where he got them together to write uh, a world history. 
but there's also um, interesting attempts in in medicine. Uh, so um, there is the the first uh, what they produced there is is um, a Persian account of Chinese medicine, the Tansukname, um, again with with illustrations, and there's still work to be done on this fascinating text um and um but but it's it's a really interesting um um, example of of how medical knowledge um moved um at this time um and in the chapter i also talk about an example of what i try to bring in other parts of the book of, of what I call uh, the cu- cultural meridians. So we, we, we tend to make the distinctions of, okay, this is Eastern medicine, this is Western medicine, uh, this is Asian, this is European. Mm-hmm. But actually when you look at places where these, uh, where there are fuzzy borders between them, it's interesting to see what, what happens. So, so, in this chapter, um, one of the things I, I do is look at this link between Tabriz, which is, as I said, northern Iran, and Trebizond, which was an important point in Byzantium. <laughs> and we see that there is um, going back and forth of, of people trying to to learn from each other. So, so there is not so the 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 some of the of the texts that and the transmissions that i that i talk about there um that go for example from persian into greek the 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 point of talking about that that transmission line is something that i tried to do more generally in the book is kind of break the this this idea of that the translation movement is all about Greek into Arabic into Latin. That the, the history of medicine is just, you know, all coming from Greece, mm-hmm. uh, babysat in inverted commas by, by Islamic culture for a few hundred years or almost a thousand years and then brought back to, to Europe in the translation movement from Arabic into Latin. So what I try to do in the book is saying it's much more complicated than that, and and the the movement goes goes in all directions, and there is an important input not only of Islamic culture but also of, of Asian culture that fed into Islamic culture, and medicine here is is one aspect of it that then got uh, translated or came into into Europe. So this um, this link that I look at in in this chapter of of Tabriz Trebizond and kind of going the the other way as it were. Um, so translations of Persian into Greek. Uh, uh, some something that uh, Maria Mavrudi has from Berkeley has been working on. Um, I think is is really important to to help us 
rewrite this dominant narrative of of the of the translation movement in in the singular move it to a more reoriented narrative and a more plural way of, of looking at these directions and transmissions. Mm-hmm. So our traditional final question is, uh, what are you working on now? What's your, what's your next project? So uh, I just, um, I just finished uh, co-editing a, a special issue um, of the journal Asian medicine mm-hmm. um, looking at uh, Asian responses to COVID-19, which includes historical uh, and anthropological elements. So I think some of these understandings that I, that come from these very early periods, they are relevant for us to think about today. So we're not, there is significance to these kinds of general questions in the way that we think about medicine today. So that's coming out, um, I think, in the next few months. Um, And then I'm trying to, I think the the book opened up a lot of of, uh, windows that um, I would like to, to go on. There, there are some questions that I haven't managed to answer and I'd like to go deeper into. That said, to, to write, what I'd like to do is to um, have a, a big collaborative project um, that would bring together a few people working on these very precarious uh, languages and, and cultures and um, yeah, so I'm trying to to write up a, a big a grant application, or actually find the the conditions that will allow me to to write a big grant application, because that is a lot of work in itself. Mm-hmm. So I hope that uh, that I find the the place and the time to do that. Wow, excellent! And I wish you all the luck with that. Um, this is a great book, and I, I can't wait to see uh, more of your your work and, and what you come up with next. Thank you. Reorienting Histories of Medicine, Encounters Along the Silk Roads uh, was published in 2021 by Bloomsbury Press. Ronit Yualitlalim, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Thank you so much. And we'll see you next episode. <laughs>